0: Welcome back to another episode of Face the Jury. In our last episode, we were joined by lawyer Natalie Kawam and journalist Matt Grant to discuss the Fairies Doctrine, a long standing law in the United States that prevented military members from pursuing medical malpractice cases when they themselves were victims. Natalie was sharing her story of how she took on the Ferries Doctrine, flew up to Washington, D.C., and walked the halls of Congress, personally lobbying members of Congress to change the law. And she accomplished something that few people have done, which is to bring bipartisanship to Washington, D.C., and to get something done in a bipartisan way. We will pick back up with Natalie and Matt as we continue our conversation.
1: I was like, wow, if I don't do this, who will? Nobody will help this guy. Is it the easy thing to do? No, but sometimes the right thing is not always easy. So I took it up a notch and I literally bet the house. I Can you imagine I refinanced my car so I can afford to continue working on this case. I stopped taking all new cases. I'd had no billables, nothing. And I just said, that's it. If I don't do this, no one will. And there's again, I will clean anyone's clock. It's not like I'm worried about going against a DOD or going against big pharma. That's not an issue. I'm I'm a smart girl. I'm a capable girl. I'm a hard worker. It was just about getting it done in time where Richard would be able to see it succeed.
0: Well, and you're not in a familiar environment. I mean, the courtroom is familiar to you, dealing with administrative hearings, dealing with government, bureaucracy, the legal system, I know is familiar to you based on your experience. But you hadn't been to Congress before. You've never been essentially a lobbyist, right. which is a different skill set. You don't have a judge to make sure people follow the rules necessarily. Sometimes you get dishonest arguments in response. So it took a lot of courage. And I had been following your career. And your work from afar, we haven't known each other that long, but just have great admiration for what you're doing. And one of the reasons I was so excited to get you on this podcast and have a chance to talk with you is because the work you're doing is very personal work for me personally, for my family. Uh, My brother, Nolan Bell, was a service member. He was in the infantry and served two tours in Iraq and a tour in Afghanistan. And he came home after his last tour with a persistent cough that he just couldn't shake. And he kept going to the VA. They kept telling him it was lung irritation, possible allergies. He's never had allergies. He's never smoked. Very healthy, athletic guy. And just kept pushing him off, pushing him off. And my father's a doctor. And my father kept telling my brother, well, when you go to the VA, insist that you get a a CT. Well, they finally scheduled it, but it was scheduled for six or eight months out. By the time they got around to doing the CT, his chest lit up, you said, like a Christmas tree. My brothers did too, and he had stage four lung cancer. And he was immediately given a terminal diagnosis that this is going to be fatal to him. And he did not survive more than additional seven, maybe eight months after that diagnosis. Mm. These are real people that are affected when there are medical errors, whether you're military or, or civilian, and you have been successful in kicking over a big wall That has prevented people, service members who've been injured by malpractice from having any hope of recovery, from having any hope of of justice, as, as much as justice can be delivered in this system. So I really applaud and thank you, heartfelt thanks to you, Natalie, for your hard work and your dedication. And I thank you too, Matt, for covering the story and bringing these issues to light and to raising awareness. We hear that a lot. I'm so impressed. I just want to say this before we wrap up, but I'm so impressed, Natalie, of your skill in identifying the language to use when speaking with people you're trying to persuade. And you say you're not a trial lawyer. If you're not, you should be because that skill set translates into the courtroom where you can meet the jury at their level. Whether they're CEO of a company or work an hourly job at a restaurant, whatever their place, you have to understand where people are coming from and you have to communicate them in a way that is in alignment with their values. And that's what struck me hearing your story is you describing the different people you approach, the people you had to persuade And you identified where their values were, where their interests are. And then you showed how Richard's case was really their case and that they should be advocates like you.
1: Thank you. And, you know, I'm sorry about what happened to your brother. You know, I got to tell you, if if I'm going to get into details here, one of the things that provided a lot of insight and help to others, you know, because this was really a, a, a complicated matter. It wasn't just going against the DOD. It was really changing the law and history and going against a force that, really was to be reckoned with. One of the things I recall was when I used to work at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, you know, CHOP, whenever a doctor came committed malpractice, and it was not that often, but when they did restructure you're out kind of thing, We used to have an inside joke, which is terrible, by the way, but it was a joke, Uh, was I wonder which VA he's going to go work at. I wonder which Hmm. DOD. Why? Because if you go and you work at the VA, you can't be sued personally at the VA. You can sue the VA, but you can't sue the doctor. At the DOD level, with DOD providers, they can't even be sued because of Ferris. So you see a lack of accountability. You see a, a lack of proper training and standard of care being followed. And I'm not, by the way, I am not bashing VA doctors because there's a lot of great ones out there that I represent, no I defend, it. and I yeah. and I really admire. But you see a lot of them uh, going into the DOD and the VA because, why? You don't have to carry malpractice insurance to go to work at the VA or the DOD hospitals. Why? Again, going back to the DOD does not allow you to sue um, before this day school bill. So you didn't need malpractice insurance. And the VA, you couldn't get sued personally, so you never needed to carry malpractice insurance. So what does that tell you? I'll tell you what it means. Whenever somebody commits a lot of malpractice, they get kicked out of the hospital first. And secondly, the insurance carrier, the malpractice insurance carrier, will no longer cover them. So they are considered uninsurable. They'll say, you know what, look, you paid $100,000 in premiums this year, but you, we cost us $3 million in payments to victims. So we are not covering you anymore. You're you're uninsurable. So when someone's uninsurable, they're considered naked. They, they practice naked. You cannot practice medicine without malpractice insurance. Any real or private hospital will not let anyone practice without malpractice insurance. So what is that? That malpractice insurance is kind of like in a sense, a litmus test of whether you're insurable or not, which means you have a history of committing malpractice or not. It's kind of like driving. You know, when you're driving, you're going to go get car insurance. They know your history and they tell you whether you're a $1,000 a year or 700 with your driving record. It's the same with malpractice insurance.
0: Well, you make a really good point, identifying the connection between holding healthcare providers accountable for malpractice and patient safety. Because the bottom line, that patients have a right, including service members, all patients have a right to expect to receive standard of care, medical care, good medical care. And when you have doctors or other clinicians who fall below the standard of care and they're negligent, they can lose their malpractice coverage. You're right. And what I've noticed is that the ones who repeatedly commit malpractice and are held accountable and lose their coverage... They don't just stop practicing. They'll pick up roots from whatever state they're in, and then they'll move to a state that has so-called tort reform in place that protects doctors and hurts patients. So a big place where a lot of doctors end up is Texas because Texas has some of the most onerous and patient-unfriendly laws where patients basically don't have a right to have a meaningful recovery from medical malpractice. So doctors practice there because they can practice with impunity. And if doctors know they can't be held accountable for malpractice, do you think they are going to exercise the same high level of diligence and attention to their patients as if they were facing potential liability and a financial exposure? Of course, they're not. No, it's they're, human nature.
1: They're correct. Right. And I think if a lot of people were more informed, studied these things. Are aware of things, they would understand why it was so important to change this law. It was. It didn't just stop at you know our military should have a right to sue. It was really this is going to create accountability. This is going to create deterrence from somebody continuing to malpractice on our on our soldiers. This is what. Going to continue to happen if we don't change it. And believe it or not, we're the only country that has ferris applying to our military. So I started looking at this as you know, a protected class, equal, you know, this is this discrimination against somebody because they zipper a uniform every morning. So we are categorizing, we're discriminating against this protected class of people because they serve our country. They can't have the same rights as everyone else. So I was slicing this apple so many directions and ways whenever I would talk to any congressman or senator because I Whenever I knew what was something that really was important to them or their cause or policy or whatever. And then at the end of the day, I said, and look at the morale. This is what we're talking about people. This is what we're giving our heroes, our green berets, our special forces guys. And what does it cost when we lose a service member? Well, it's about $150,000 in training alone, a whole lifetime of his training and everything, 1.5 million.
0: Natalie, earlier, I was sympathetic with you and thinking, poor Natalie, and how could she stand up to all these Congress people? And now I'm thinking, poor Congress people, how could they stand up to Natalie? They didn't, have a, they didn't have a chance. They didn't know what hit them. They didn't have a chance. And Matt, I want to just ask you, what feedback did you get from your listeners, your audience in North Carolina when you raised these issues? Because North Carolina is one of those states that has very severe laws in place that restrict patient access to the courts in malpractice cases. And it's a so-called tort reform state, very conservative in, the, in these areas of law, not very patient friendly. So talk to me about the reaction you got when you became sort of a, a, mal, a spokesperson or, or a reporter for a person who's trying to expand the ability to file malpractice actions.
2: When we did Richard's story, you know, like the next day, I was calling uh, every lawmaker in, in North and South Carolina and sending our story and trying to get the response. And it was Congressman Richard Hudson who responded right away and said that he would look into trying to change the law. And he partnered with Congresswoman Jackie Speier of California. And they put something together. And before you know it, Richard's on Capitol Hill testifying. I received a lot of feedback, both from service members and from members of the public who just, our viewers had no idea about the Ferris auction. They had no clue that an inmate can sue, but that an active duty service member can't. And our viewers were emailing me saying, how is this possible? What can we do? And we actually had a lot of our viewers saying, tell me more about this. We want to reach out to our member of Congress and we want to see what they can do to change this. What I heard over and over again from the families of service members after the law was passed was thank you to us to please tell Natalie, please tell Richard, thank you for doing this. For a lot of the families who have lost a loved one to botched or negligent care, or for these service members who just suffered terribly it's not about the money at all. It's about accountability and justice. And like you guys were talking about before with these bad doctors, this is a way to get a measure of justice. It's a way to hold these doctors accountable for the mistakes that they're making that can ruin lives, that in some cases are leading to death. And I'll tell you real quick you know, the family of Jordan Way, it's a another service member whose loved one died. He went in for routine shoulder surgery, young guy, he, get, he gets out of it. He's in terrible pain. The doctor says, okay, well, we're going to prescribe you oxycodone. And he prescribed him 82 pills over four days. Uh, Jordan Way died of opioid toxicity. He took the medication that his doctor prescribed to him as prescribed and he died. And his parents told me that Jordan trusted who was in charge of him, and that's what killed him. That's horrible. It's very sad. Yeah, it is. And And this law gives them a measure of justice because the way it's set up now, they don't know the results of the internal investigation. They don't know what happened to this doctor. They're totally kept in the dark. But under this law, they were the second family, I believe, to file a claim against the government. And at least to them knows that they're able to get some measure of justice for their son. And I want to
0: ask Natalie, the wheels of justice are moving slowly. I understand that not a single claim has been processed by the DOD and not only Sergeant Skasekul, but also hundreds of other service members who've presented claims for malpractice Their claims are sitting somewhere, but there has not been any movement on them, at least no visible movement. Natalie, can you tell us what the problem is? And if any of our listeners are motivated to take action, what can be done to move the ball forward and get justice for these service members?
1: Again, going back to the whole accountability thing, I'm asking those to be accountable to be accountable. So we got the bill passed. The president signed into law, and now we're waiting for the DOD to issue these rules And without these rules, they cannot pay or process these claims because they have to make those decisions and determining factors as to what elements are met when it comes to malpractice and all the guidelines and such. that go with it. At First, they said, oh, it was COVID. They were supposed to be out June 30th. So when that didn't move and it was just crickets. I started shaking the tree again with Congress and saying, you you guys got to look into this. What's going on here? They are not following the rules here. And then they said, hey, we need till September 30th. So, of course, you know, I'm staring at the clock at September 30th, 1159 p.m., 1201. I'm like, all right ringing the bells again, and then Congress reached out and they said, oh, sorry, we're a little delayed. We're gonna need more time. You know, COVID, and I love this one. It's a transition from president to president. Okay, so if COVID and transitioning is your excuse for not working, well, then don't take a paycheck. Just say, you know what? I'm not working. It's a transition period. Or I'm not working. It's COVID. You don't need a paycheck.
0: I hear you. I, well, what can we do? What what can our listeners do?
1: Our listeners can call the Armed Services Committee members. You know, those are the most important people that, that can do anything. The Armed Services Committee can make the DOD uh, sit before them in a hearing or say, where are you with this? And they need to call, you know, let's just use some congressmen and senators that are really important in this situation. Jack Reed, Senator Inhofe, Congresswoman Jackie Spears, Congressman Adam Smith. Those are some people to call and say, hey, look, this is unacceptable. You can call the Pentagon, you can call the Secretary of the Defense, which is really important because he's the one that's behind everything. He is that top guy on the DOD. Calling the Secretary of Defense or calling congressmen and senators that are on Armed Services Committee, hopefully with these men and women that served And Lloyd, when you were talking about your brother, Major Richard Starr had just passed away, and same thing. You know, he was coughing a lot, and they just kept on brushing it
0: off. President Biden's son, Beau Biden, had the same experience as well. Correct. The lung cancer from from exposure to the fumes from the burn pits and— In the Middle East, um.
1: and it's horrible, you know. And I deal with burn pit victims all the time right now. If you can't call the president, if you can't call the Secretary of Defense, you call your congressman or senator, especially the ones on the Armed Services Committee, and say, "Enough is enough." You know, we have men and women who are dying, literally waiting for this to happen. I remember Richard Starr saying to me, "I want to make sure my wife and my kids are okay before I die." But this is not fair. He didn't get to know that he didn't die comfortably, knowing his wife and kids would be taken care of.
2: Lloyd, we're talking about $400 million that the Pentagon has money that should be going to the family members of soldiers who are victims. Uh, And instead, these claims, more than 100 of them, are just languishing at the Pentagon, just untouched And you can see why these family members are furious and lawmakers are upset, too, because they were reaching out to the Department of Defense for answers. And in Jackie Spears's case, her office told me that the DOD just flat out ignored her. And so now my source on Capitol Hill is telling me that lawmakers are going to be grilling DOD officials in the coming days. Good. Yeah. Hopefully out of that, we'll be getting some more answers and clarity as to what's going
0: on here. We know that we're on the right path. Because of the good work that Natalie's done and her commitment,
1: you know, Lori, I want—I want to say it's the good work that Matt did. I'll tell you something. When Matt did this story, you know, I mean, we were—I kind of laughed, Matt, because I think about that day that we were on Capitol Hill and it started raining, and I, like I look like a cat, a drowned cat, like my. So did I. It was—it was one of those things. Like I just thought, God, you know, God must hate me. You know, no good deed goes unpunished, but it was moments like that where we would laugh and things like that we would experience and thank how we did. And, and we have such a positive outcome of this, but, but it was Matt that showed up. It was Matt that took this series. And I'll tell you why I say that. And I say, I always say Matt's this, the, the reason for this season. Had he not brought exposure to this, had he not brought awareness, had he not gotten, I loved it, the most favorite part of my life is the Lindsey Graham interview that you did to him at the Citadel. Matt's work should go in history as the most incredible investigative reporter I have ever. And I, by the way, talk to people on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC on a daily basis, NBC, ABC, CBS. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to reporters all day, all night, every day. And Matt Grant was the only person who was willing to run with this case. And I'll tell you how it speaks volumes to me when this bill passed, you know, of course, I got the New York Times calling me and Allison, I became, uh, you know, a visible person. But before then I was just crazy, by the way. And so I never forget this NPR reporter called me and he said, you know, a year ago when I heard about you doing this case. I rolled my eyes. And I said, good luck. Look at that little young girl trying to come after the DOD. Are you kidding me? He said to me, oh, little young girl, you're you're going to lose. I'm like, I said to him, I go, what did you mean by that? He goes, when you took on this fight, I thought she has no idea about history and how it's against her. And she's never going to win this. And that's why I refused to call you Natalie and do the story on you because there was no chance in hell. I would have, I would have bet all the money in the world that you were never going to be successful in this. And that's why I refuse to do a story. And he goes, and now I look back and maybe I shouldn't be so um, skeptical or prejudiced or, you know, sexist or, and and he's sitting there talking out loud. I'm sitting there. Is he actually telling me this? And he goes, I didn't never, I would have done the story if I had actually thought you were capable. Uh, I appreciate the compliment, but I thank God that Matt Grant covered this story because he had that the intuition he knew he had the, the, the moral, compass to know that this is something that's important it doesn't matter if you win or lose it's important to fight for the right thing and bring awareness to it we happen to win because we we gave it our all but people like matt grant were the ones who were there in the very beginning who showed up in congress who, who flew into tampa who who followed us who brought all this traction and you know what if it wasn't and he met the majority of my clients, he sat there, I'll never forget, with the ways. It was like 10 p.m. at night. There wasn't a moment he didn't just pick up the microphone and the, turn on the camera, carrying everything himself like he's like the help himself too, carrying everything, going from meeting to meeting. And it was amazing how he just continued to drive it. And, and then everyone else caught on. And then all of a sudden it became like a superstar story and like Fox is covering us and everyone. But I thought, you know, Matt Grant. Was the reason, you know, and it's like I really believe it takes a team and it really it's incredible when you have, uh, you know, an all star like Matt Grant on your on your side for a case because I couldn't have done it without him. And you know what that having him having him push the the envelope the way he did, especially with Lindsey Graham, that was like to me, that should be in the movie. That was the movie part, that Citadel part with Matt Grant asking Lindsey Graham, you refuse to meet." You got to say it, Matt.
0: You need to work on the uh, you need to work on the screenplay. This sounds like this sounds like it yeah, could Natalie, be let's be a let's work on the wonderful <laughs> Netflix. Yeah, Matt, be, well,
1: Matt, it'll be announced tomorrow.
2: <laughs> that was very kind of you, Natalie. Yeah. Thank you very it's much.
0: It's true, though. Hearing you talk, Natalie, about Matt's contribution is these battles need allies. No matter how talented, how strong, how effective one person is, that person needs allies. When taken on Congress, and in the fact that you could attract that and be as effective as you were just really speaks volumes. And we're going to wrap up, but I just want to say thank you to both of you for being with me today and being on this podcast. This podcast was put together for the purpose of educating the public about these issues of medical malpractice so that people can know how how they can spot it, how they can protect themselves, how they can prevent it from hurting the people they care about. And y'all have been very educational and helpful in understanding these issues better. So I really want to thank you for being with us today. And this will wrap up this episode of Face the Jury. This season is going to be one with interesting guests. I'm going to have clients who've agreed to participate in some of these podcasts. We can continue our mission to rid the world of medical malpractice and improve patient safety. Thank you for joining us today on Face the Jury.